Decemberists, this is why we fight, and this is Labor Lines on KRFP 90.3 FM, Moscow, Idaho, krfp.org. I'm John Andercheck, recording this show to air on the 12th of January, recording it from my home in Idaho County, Idaho, uh, the day after the insurrection in our capital, which was, to me, uh, was a visceral reaction to see that um, amazing just amazing but here we are we're still on our feet got some stuff coming up a uh, great interview from this morning with Eric Dernbach a lifelong union activist union organizer and labor researcher uh, we were set to talk about and we will in this interview an article he wrote in organizing.work uh, looking into some current labor statistics, number of strikes, number of uh, organized workplaces, the success of that uh, gives a great uh, nuanced look at that and also talks about uh, the need to uh, apply different methods or actually go back to different methods of organizing as we look at the dwindling number of uh, union membership in the United States. And he'll talk about the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee in the second half of what's going to be two 30-minute segments. So about an hour of this two-hour-long show on KRFP. I'd like to thank those who underwrite all of our shows. I'd like to thank the three anonymous donors to the Adopt a DJ program, which is a way to support a specific program like Labor Lines or or the many other great programming, all our great programming on KRFP. KRFP is a community-supported, community-supporting radio station. I hope all of you listening will consider becoming a member to one degree or another, and you can find out how by going to krfp.org. Uh, this show now is also on some podcast platforms, starting with Anchor FM and including Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, Breaker, Spotify, and good old Google. On that, I'll put the entire shows after they air, as well as standalone interviews. So you could find that out there. And if you have trouble with the streaming audio, live the live stream, 
uh, that's linked to our webpage at KRFP. There's a number of apps out there to try. I'm not really plugging any. I use Radio Garden, but there's a number of them, none of them affiliated with the station. But I find it a good way to uh, listen when uh, I'm here in the Clearwater Valley at home well out of the broadcast range of this great station. Uh, coming up, just about, actually, this is my s- two years of being on the show. I'd like to thank the board of directors who have kept KRFP running and gunning for a long time. I'd like to shout out to Lee Robertos, the great station manager, who's been pretty much uh, keeping things going uh, all along, but especially under COVID, c- uh, keeping the lights on literally and figuratively with a lot of help from Jim. Uh, it's a great organization. I'm just honored to be part of it. And I hope I, anyone listening that is not yet a member to do the same. Okay, once again, uh, starting about at the top of the hour, will that be interview with Eric Dernbach uh, before that and after that some music. So I hope you all stay tuned. I grew up two hours north of Birmingham Me and my daddy used to fish next to Wilson Dam He told some stories Camaros and J.W. Dant When I got a little older I wouldn't and now daddy can't So I thank God for the TV Thank God for the TV Where me and my daddy used to bow to the river and pray Thank God for the TV Me and my girl sit out on the lock Watching the raccoons and terrapins dance on the rocks She let me put my up under her shirt I wanted her to want me so bad did her so I thank God for the TV Thank God for the TV Where me and my baby used to lay around and wait on the day Thank God for the TV
told me when he was just seven or so. His daddy lost work and they didn't have a road Not too much to eat for seven boys and three girls. All lived in a tent, a bunch of sharecroppers versus the world. So his mama sat down and wrote a letter to FDR Then a couple days later, a couple county men came in a car Rode out in the field and told his daddy to put down the plow. And he helped build the dam, and gave power to most of the South. So I thank God for the TVA Thank God for the TVA Where Roosevelt let us all work for an honest day's Company. Lately there ain't been much 
it's because I didn't do the intro. Let's do the intro again. All I'm right, liking yeah, this intro thing. Yeah, yeah. Hi, my name is Josiah Early. I'm here in Nashville, Tennessee uh, for the Americana Fest. I'm going to do a Towns Van Sant cover called Tecumseh Valley. Uh, I figure it's appropriate being in Tennessee. And um, this is for uh, Gems on VHS. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. Well, the name she gave was Caroline. She was the daughter of a miner, and her ways were free, and it seemed to me the sunshine walked beside her. Well, she come from Spencer Across the hill She set up Paul Center Cause the cold was low On sun snow But turn those skies to winter But the times are hard, Lord, and the jobs are few. All through Tecumseh Valley, but she asked around, and a job she found. Tending bar for Gypsy Sally. Well, she made enough to get back home when the spring replaced the winter. But her dreams were denied, her paw died. The wood come down from Spencer. So she took to whoring out in the streets with all the lust inside her and as many men who'd return again to lay himself beside her. Well, they found her down beneath the stairs Led to Gypsy Sally's And in her hand when she died Was an old that cried Fare thee well to Coombsville Valley Well, the name she gave was Caroline. She's the daughter of a miner, and her ways were free, and it seemed to me that sunshine walked beside her. Took my first breath with a muddy 
rises, spills into the Gulf of Mexico The skyline's colored by chemical plants That put bread on the table of the working man Where the working man does his best to provide Safety and shelter for kids and a wife Giving a little of a soul every day Making overtime to keep the wolves away When the company man tried to dig my daddy's grave It happened on a French-owned tanker ship Spilling poison in the Galveston Bay Well, the liquid fire filled his lungs And his eyes silenced any more cries Cold in the grave with death stinging pain He fought like hell to keep the wolves away But the money's running out And he's painting for pennies So I'm going for broke With every song I play Cause now it's my turn To keep the wolves away Keep the Wolves Away, Joshua Early, covering Town Van Zandt's Tecumseh Valley. Ruby Day Music is how it's listed on YouTube, and you can find this female musician covering Springsteen's The River, and started out this music set with the Drive-By Truckers TVA, Tennessee Valley Authority. The show is Labor Lines. I'm John Andercheck. I'm recording this to play on the 12th of January. I'm recording it on the 7th, the day after the insurrection. Coming up at the top of the hour will be the first 30-minute segment of an interview I recorded yesterday 
or actually this morning, pardon me, with Eric Darnbach, a lifelong union organizer. He's a labor researcher, member of the Labor's Union. Uh, we will obviously talk about what happened yesterday and then move right into his analysis of recent uh, labor statistics, puts all his life's experience looking at those, talks about the different needs uh, we're going to have to face, how we're going to have to organize differently, how we organize in the past, how we can learn from the past. Again, KRFP 90.3 FM, and the show is Labor Lines. You can reach me at laborlinejohn at yahoo.com or Twitter via at Twitter at laborlinejohn. Thank you now. John Andercheck, John Andercheck with Labor Lines on KRFP Moscow, Idaho and Labor Lines podcast. Joining me today from New York City is Eric Dernbach, a union researcher. Uh, we said scheduled this interview to look at some articles he wrote about uh, the labor statistics, decline in union membership. But right now, here today, this morning, is uh, 24 hours after what uh, I will describe as attempted coup on our peaceful transfer of power in uh, our flawed but still uh, existing democratic institution so eric here we are uh, uh there's no way around it is there uh hey good morning john thanks for having me on absolutely yeah we, we were going to have a discussion about the labor movement which we which i hope we will get to but what a day yesterday i think it's, it's important for us to kind of discuss it a bit try to understand it uh, right so again a, a labor uh, researcher you want to uh, give those who will listen to this a little uh, uh nuance to that a little uh we'll flush that out if you will okay. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, as you said, I, I live in New York City and uh, for the past 20 years or so, I've been a union researcher and organizer and trainer and lots of other things for, for a few different unions over the years. I got my start in the labor movement when I was in graduate school in the 1990s at the University of Michigan. And we had a union for graduate um, student instructors. And I joined the union and was a member for five years and was actually uh, president of a local, this was an AFT, American Federation of Teachers local. I was president during the 1999 uh, contract campaign where we uh, went on strike and negotiated uh, what we thought was the, the best contract in the history of the local. Uh, this was a union at the time of about 1,500 um, teaching assistants. And you know, I think that, that kind of uh, experience kind of radicalized me and kind of really turned me on to you know, what unions were about. I come from a union family, uh, but that that experience of, of solidarity and collective action um, really made me want to uh, just contribute more uh, to the labor movement. So I, um, you know, became a union researcher over the years, and I worked for a few different unions. Um, one was called Unite, the Apparel and Textile Workers Union, which then became Unite Here, um, and then I was um, with Change to Win, which is kind of the, the breakaway union federation of some unions that broke away from the AFL-CIO in the 2000s, which is still around. Uh, and then now I've been um, for a number of years with the Laborers Union, one of the construction unions, as a, a researcher that focused on green jobs and infrastructure and uh, helping organize. And I understand, John, that you uh, as well are a laborers member in your area. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. But you mentioned that when we were, we were, uh, we're uh, messaging back and forth. Eric Wright, I carry a card, Local 238. It, it's a great union. Uh, we could disagree sometimes with the leadership uh but uh, it's in. I think in New York City, especially, it well represents the demographics. Uh, and uh, and I'm glad to hear you're looking into the whatever we want to call it, Green New Deal, the transition. Because uh, if we don't bring our brothers and sisters along in the trades, uh, that's going to fail. But wow, we could we could get into that, but we won't right now. But very interesting background and uh, very interesting. You really covered some interesting terrain. Of not that many years ago that people can forget with uh, unite here and a win for change that was that was big news back in the day. It was. I mean, there was an effort, you know, really ever since 1995 when John Sweeney's uh, took over the AFL-CIO with his new voice link. There's been a lot of debate in the labor movement about how to do more organizing to reverse the slide in union membership. And I, I cannot say we've been too successful, but, you know, in the twists and turns of that debate, there were some breakaway unions that formed Change to Win that had some different ideas about how to do some organizing. And I think, you know, th there are some statistics and data out there that show that, that actually we, we do fairly well in organizing where we do it. We just don't do enough of it. We can also talk about the different forms that takes. 
But I should also say, just so your listeners know where my politics are, in New York City, I'm a member of DSA, Democratic Socialists America, and also the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World. And so, you know, I'm interested in kind of a democratic militant, um, you know, radical labor movement um, that, that is interested in uh, taking seriously an idea of transitioning eventually past capitalism towards a socialist system. How that will be done, uh, up for debate. Um, but that's kind of where my politics lie. Well, that's interesting. Uh, again, another commonality here, Eric, is that I uh, am uh, a member of our local regional chapter of the Democratic Socialist America. I'm proud of, of the comrades that I've become associated with. And what drew me to the DSA after I saw a cover story on the Nation magazine with its growth after Sanders, and I was a Sanders volunteer in 16, um, when I looked into DSA was its fundamental pillars, their campaigns, as they called it, was the, the support of labor. And uh, our local chapter uh, really carried that. We were, we were very well um, uh, in, invested in a three-year strike with uh, miners up in this North Idaho area, historically a mine country. And um, I, I must say that the, the members of DSA here really walked the walk with those uh, union members to the point that they, they kind of took ownership of us and called us their socialists. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think DSA and, uh, has made support of the labor movement and support of organizing and reform and kind of increasing militancy in the labor movement a real priority. And of course, big debates about the ways to go about doing that. Absolutely. Right. But again, as, as when we get into your uh, article, uh, we can debate how, but we can't really debate the need for it. Uh, when we, uh, uh, and it's been going on for decades, Eric. But once again, here we are. When, you know, it was like uh, there's no way we could, uh, uh, could or would want to uh, avoid uh what happened in our country yesterday, again, uh, as members of the DSA, uh, we are able and willing to point out the flaws in our, our democratic republic, our democratic system. But as a democratic socialist, personally, I feel vested in uh, a democratic process of people uh, having the right to vote. And uh, as we were saying off the recording here uh this was just not, oh, they happened to show up on a certain day, was it? No, absolutely. I mean, this is this is classic Trump, in a sense. I mean, look, we have a flawed pseudo-democracy. We understand that. Uh, gerrymandering, voter suppression, and the Electoral College. Also, uh, kind of exorbitant amounts of money in politics, um, and politics controlled by, by capitalist bosses, means that we don't have a true democracy. Um, but that said... Um, you know, Trump was, you know, an even greater threat than usual than the Republican Party because he decided, and he, he's been signaling this for, you know, for a long time, that he would not accept a defeat in an election that was, you know, for the most part, obviously, um, largely uh, free of the kind of fraud that he's been claiming, uh, and also record turnout, et cetera. So, look, I would have given 100 hours to, to knock for, on doors for Bernie Sanders. I gave Biden a few, not because I like Biden so much, um, not, not really. Although he might do some things, we'll see. Um, but because Trump needs to go, and he does, but he wanted to overturn, you know, a clear outcome of the election and stay in power, uh, and he incited a mob of his essentially white supremacist supporters um, to attack the Capitol. This seems to me to be a failed attempted fascist coup, badly organized and sloppy, as Trump always is. He's incompetent. Uh, luckily, he can't organize a coup to save his life, um, but there it is. Um, but also, I think we see this as you know a long-term trend of kind of white supremacist and fascist activity with state militias, et cetera, kind of growing conservative movements around the country. Um, certainly, you're familiar with this in your state of Idaho. Um, I think we go back and forth over time about how much to worry about it. Um, it's a huge debate among the left. Um, but, you know, this is kind of this episode yesterday is kind of a culmination of that. Right. Absolutely. Again, uh I look upon Biden, my politics here, I'll throw in uh, a comrade with our chapter here, put it well, is that he's going to be a better foe than um, uh, Trump or as uh, 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 another scholar put it, we went from the, the, the absolute catastrophe of neo-fascism to the disaster of neoliberalism uh, with the election. But it was election, uh, flawed as it is, again, and they certainly were not storming the Capitol to uh, bring about a, a reform in, the, in our democratic republic, were they? 
I mean, let, let's look at the aims. Uh, I mean, they want. I mean, I guess we can, folks can interview some of the some of the protesters who were there, uh, or members of the mob that were there to find out exactly what they thought they were doing. Um, I mean, the, a loyalty to Trump as kind of like this autocratic figure. Uh, maybe some of them genuinely thought they were trying to save democracy. Yeah, but that's not good enough. I mean, folks have to do the work to kind of live in the real world and figure out what's going on here. I mean, the fact that some of them might actually believe that there was voter fraud and that the election was stolen from Trump is not a good enough reason for them to kind of practice the politics they have, which, again, is conservative white supremacy. Uh, I mean, any people of color in the vicinity of that area would have been in real danger. I think we understand that. I mean, this is the kind of real danger of fascism. And we can argue and debate about how to respond to it. Um, you know, but, but what happened yesterday, I think, is just a manifestation. There was no, there was no um, real possibility that they, they were going to succeed. And, of, of course, Trump doesn't have the support of the military. He doesn't really, at this point, have the support, I guess, of the majority of the Republican Party. But this is kind of like a, kind of a cancerous strain within conservatism and, and within the GOP. And, again, it's just like Trump is not really anything new. It's kind of the culmination of where the party has been headed for a long time. I mean, this is a man that, you know, whether or not he's a fascist himself is up for debate, but he practices a, a form of fascist politics, which I think is pretty clear in, in the way that he's acted um, over the past few years. And unfortunately, and we could talk about this, tens of millions of people are willing to go along with him um, strongly or, or, just, or just abide by it. And that includes, unfortunately, millions of union members, which is a huge problem for us in the labor movement, right? Well, absolutely. And again, well, uh, you know, Trump... Uh, I think what the divide we'll see be, uh, among folks like us and others, not to sound uh, too uh, presumptuous or too pompous, but uh, we saw Trump coming. I mean, we saw Trump coming. You know, he, he, he is not the disease, is he, Eric? Uh, you know, he's the symptom. Uh, and uh, as much as he's a product of the Republican Party, uh, I'm willing to say he's a, a product of the Democratic Party. And when we talk about our brothers and sisters in the unions, our, our just all workers, our comrades, um, uh, there's a lot of responsibility. There's a long trail that we could uh, follow back to where they end up. A lot of, there is that racist element in it. Uh, but uh, I'll quote Thomas Frank: a lot of them didn't end up this way because they prospered. They ended up this way because their economy was put through a meat grinder. Uh, and you know that maybe is a segue into uh, what we're seeing with declining unions and what we're seeing with the with uh, the identification of many people uh, with Trump. Um, uh, when they looked at the alternative, certainly going back to 2016. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a complicated mix of factors. You know, and again, I'm not, I'm not a political scientist. I, w- I wouldn't be able to say definitively, here's what, here's the reason why folks like, like Trump. is certainly a mixture of economic factors and then other factors such as racism and sexism and, and religion thrown in there and, uh, and, and kind of the worship of gun culture. And, and Trump, if Trump had any kind of genius, creative genius, it was that he found a way to tap into that, you know, probably more than any other uh, Republican, cer- certainly in a long time, uh, in a really bad way. And, you know, I cert- we certainly as socialists, we fault the Democratic Party for not offering a compelling alternative for so many people to this kind of toxic brew of white nationalism and patriarchy um, that the Republicans offer. And, you know, the, the Democrats need to do a better job of, of fighting for regular people of organizing and fighting in rural areas. And of course, there's great work being done uh, by activists in rural areas and in so-called red states. Uh, but the Democratic Party as an institution, I think, has really failed there and has given up on so many states or doesn't really know what to do. You know, this kind of like, you know, big spending on ads and consultant driven and focus grouping and not, not kind of the basics of door knocking, the kind of thing that the labor movement knows how to do. Of course, we also need to do better in the labor movement as well. Excellent. Again, I'm talking with Eric Dernbach. He's calling me this morning. Today is, let's see, it's the 8th of uh, You know, it's the 7th of January. How should I miss that up? Mix that up. Yesterday was the big day, you know, the uh, assault on the Capitol. Uh, uh, speaking with Eric Dernbach, this is trying to intercheck labor lines is the tag I go by. Labor lines is on KRFP, Moscow, Idaho, and I now on some podcast platforms. Uh, but right, going back to uh, the Democrats versus the Republicans, and as we talk about labor, um, uh, I get dog. Sometimes I even, I mean, I have some good discussions on 
uh, the social media. But uh, many times I get this dogpiled by uh, what a friend of mine calls the old guard, and they argue about how horrible the Republican Party is. And uh, I quote my hero uh, Grant. I said, I you know they you know U.S. Grant when he took over the Union armies. Uh, he was warned by by some that oh you just have to be careful about Bobby Lee what Bobby Lee is going to do to you, and he his response is says no we, we don't worry about what Bobby Lee is going to do to us we're going to make him worry about what we're going to do to him I don't worry about the Republican Party but um, if all you're going to say is the Democratic Party is not as bad as the Republican Party uh, this is where you end up in my opinion um, uh, Eric you end up with uh, uh, the split away with people kind of lost and. And uh, here comes uh, Trump, who uh, uh, he might be crazy, uh, but, you know, uh, he's so stupid, he had to hire someone to fly Air Force One, isn't, didn't he? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's, again, a long debate about like what to do about the, about the Democrats. Um, I certainly prefer them to the Republicans. I, I have voted Democrat a bunch of times, and I've also voted third party a bunch of times. It's another whole debate about whether the left should try to break away and form a third party. Certainly a challenge. And as we know, DSA's strategy right now is to back uh, very progressive and self-identified socialists running on the Democratic line with, again, some success. We now have the squad, et cetera. Um, you know, and, and, and certainly that strategy can continue. Uh, but I, I'm mostly interested in kind of like how do we kind of reorganize or, or organize some of, some of the soft core Trump base? I mean, there's certainly the hardcore white supremacists. Um, and neo-Nazis, like there's that, there's that faction. We, 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 we probably should have very little to do with them. But, you know, but again, there's tens of millions, including millions of union members that are Trump supporters in the sense that they thought he was, he was something new, something fresh on the scene. They felt betrayed by Democrats, you know, to some extent true. Trump is saying some interesting things about trade and about other things, about bringing back coal and manufacturing jobs. Of course, you know, he, he's essentially lying and he's not really going to deliver anything to anybody. But, you know, this is, I see this as an organizing opportunity. How do we present an alternative kind of politics, in my view, a socialist politics, that's actually going to help people's lives, right? Something like you know, health care for all, uh, better jobs, better housing, better education. The things that are really going to really matter to people and bring them away from this kind of toxic mix of kind of nationalism, white supremacy, uh, you know, the distrust of immigrants, patriarchy, um, you know, kind of toxic religion, uh, you know, that, that kind of thing that I think is really not going to do anything for people. But they find that compelling. Look, I don't have all the answers. And I live in New York City. You should tell me what we can do in rural areas, uh, you know, like where you live in Idaho. Uh, but, but we got to figure this out. Right. Absolutely. You know, the, the, excuse me, the old adage of we have to quit pulling people out of the river and go up country and find out what's who or what's throwing them in. Um, uh, it, uh, you know, it goes back to the Clinton uh, adage, you know, it's the economy, stupid. You know, it's it, uh, yeah, well, let's focus on the jobs. I, I live in where I live. It's it, it, the, the toll of uh, neoliberal capitalism is front and center. Uh, a daughter of mine was a student teacher here. Uh, one of her students' uh, brother uh, hung himself in his woodshed. Uh, you know the the substance abuse, the dilapidated living conditions, um, uh, economy, a just economy. Eric will not uh, cure all the problems and flaws of humanity. As a person of faith, uh, I, I consider the world a fallen world. Uh, darn it! Um, I think if you if you offered an economy to folks, be it New York City or uh, Idaho County where I live, that offers them some hope in the morning when they get up for themselves and more so for their family. However, they define their family, be it their kids, their nieces and nephews, uh, the kids down the street. Uh, if we offer that to them. Uh, you know, it's not going to be eaten, but it's going to be better than what we have because what we have isn't looking good, is it? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's right. I mean, if you meet people's real material needs um, over good, good paid work, health care, housing, education, and things like that, so they don't feel abandoned um, and left struggling in kind of low paid, uh, kind of no benefit jobs, um, you know, then, then I think we have a chance. Um, 
you know, but, but also I think it's just like, you know, finding ways to kind of like practice solidarity and cooperation, you know, like for instance, there's an interesting article that came out last year that showed that white union members uh, or white, white workers, when they join unions over time, um, scored lower on racial resentment. In other words, their politics shifted more to the left as a result of being in a union. And, you know, I think that's, I think that's, that's really fascinating. And, um, certainly we, we should think a lot really hard about that. And I think maybe one reason is that a union is one of the few places where you have, you know, workers of all different you know, races and backgrounds kind of struggling together to improve their working conditions. And you might have, you know, conservative white workers, you know, working together with black workers, maybe for the first time in this workplace, you know, fighting over a contract and, and getting a better deal when they work together in solidarity. I mean, I think examples like that are really great. Uh, and we, we need to do that. We need to do a lot more of that, obviously. I agree. That, and, and, and excuse me, again, going uh, back to union, to unionism, to the labor movement, the historic labor movement, which started uh, you know, at the dawn of, of civilization, if you ask me, one 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 said that you you know you make and I take. Uh, uh, it is this fundamental uh, social organization, strong in times, weak in other times, always struggling. Uh, I like to say you know wins and losses, but never truly defeated because we're still on our feet. Uh, we're still here, but it it does offer uh, this social institution. Uh, that exists outside the government uh, uh, to one degree or the other. And that's a big uh, conversation to have among union organizers, labor organizers. You know, how much does uh, government's uh, labor laws hurt or help us? Uh, but there it is. And it, it, it's, it offers that, uh, that solidarity. That's a very interesting to hear that it, it does uh, uh, change people. So, so, so then we're, we're kind of segueing into the conversation Uh well, you know, we could talk about uh, what it would take, what our ideas are, uh, uh, but we're going to come up to your article uh, that led me to uh, connecting with you, Eric, in that uh, just looking at the stats, let's just look at the numbers of what's been going on with union membership. Uh, you want to get into that? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll try to talk about the data in an entertaining way. This is an article I wrote about a year ago for the, the website organizing.work. Um, and I know you've, you've interviewed other authors and the editor of that website. Uh, and the article's called, Is the U.S. Labor Movement in Recovery? And what I typically do at the beginning of each year, and I'm going to do this again in a month or so, is I look at all the labor movement data that comes out, uh, membership and union elections and strikes, essentially, to kind of figure out where we are. And I think, you know, listeners of your program probably know, you know, the biggest statistic, as always, is the decline in union membership there was a peak of about one third of the workforce were union members in the 1950s. Um, and now it's about 10%, right? A huge, huge decline. I think there's so many ramifications for that, including how it's impacted our politics. You just have uh, many fewer people, uh, workers in the country exposed to unionism and solidarity and cooperative collective action, right? They just don't, they just never exposed to it. And so that's why I think growing the labor movement, uh, you know, to back to where it was and even further, would be one, I think, really key solution to kind of this political dilemma that we have, you know, with so many people kind of enamored of, 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 of ultra-conservative politics, right? And so, you know, I think your listeners know that the labor movement grew dramatically during the 1930s and 1940s as a result of kind of the, the turmoil of the Great Depression uh, and World War II, came out of the post-war um, uh, era, you know, there's many general strikes, et cetera, came out very strong at one third. Now, of course, the labor movement at that time has had serious problems. It was, it was racist and sexist, as was society as a whole. It was a movement largely of white men. Um, and so, you know, we, we, the labor movement has improved since then and become much more diverse, uh, much more oriented toward uh, racial and gender justice, although we certainly have uh, problems you know, we, we need to improve in that. Uh, but the fact that we're down to 10 percent as opposed to one third uh, of all workers is I think one of the key statistics that folks have to understand it shifts the politics, it shifts the economics. Think about all the lost wealth that's unclaimed by the, by the working class as a whole with that loss of collective bargaining power. I mean, it's really a stunning statistic. So I basically talk about, you know, the trend. And again, that might be familiar, but I talk about the, the trend um, that that's been going on, which we honestly have not been able to reverse. 
Right. And you know, this is interesting. I found in your article that interesting how you, your, your research uh, was able to actually put a number on that $200 billion, I think that was, uh, that you note uh, of lost uh uh, a lost wealth, lost wages, however you want to, uh, you know, kind of a lost commons. And uh, uh, decades ago, there was a, a politician that used to say, you know, a billion here, a billion there, you're talking real money. I mean, uh, $200 billion. So uh, your research is very interested, interesting there. And uh, and again, yes, you know, as both of us members of the laborers union, we know uh, at one time, you know, white men only need to apply. Uh, it was different times. I actually feel that, you um, we need to get the story out of what we're trying to do to improve that, because I think one of the problems uh, unions face in this country is um, that uh, we, we're not being recognized for what's being tried. But that might be a whole different story there. But again, there were problems uh, during the great organizing campaigns uh, in the 30s and all the upheavals. Um, uh, one of the we had some great organizers that eventually got chased out of the union movement, didn't we? Yeah, right. So absolutely. So when the fifties hit, there was you know the McCarthy era, and uh, the unions did at the instigation of the governments. Partly, uh, the unions did an anti-communist purge, um, and so a lot of talented organizers left. The most militant, talented organizers of the labor movement had to leave, and that I, and that I think was one change. I don't want to overstate that. I think another big change within the labor movement was this move towards kind of a very kind of bureaucratic and legalistic form of unionism where, you know, we have signed contracts with a no strike clause, management rights clause. Uh, you know, we can't really strike until the contract is up. Um, and over time, you know, grievances are handling through paperwork and arbitration rather than being settled on the shop floor. I know this is, you've talked with other folks at organizing.work about this kind of direct action framework, which was largely replaced since then with this kind of bureaucratic framework, um, you know, over time, complicated story also changes in labor law and court cases, uh, you know, for instance, that make it harder to organize and harder to strike. Um, I think it's just been since then a chipping away at the ability to organize, a chipping away at, at, at kind of um, at labor movement rights and freedoms. And so we find ourselves in this kind of this really difficult straitjacket with the current labor law and also current union practices that we really need to break out of. And uh, so that's so why I talk later on in the article about how, how the, the various kind of main mechanisms that we use to organize and also, and also strike. So I, I can go on and talk about that. Well, that's right. And, uh, yeah, we're, uh, that's all good. We'll, let's get into that. I'm looking at your article, Eric. Uh, Eric Dernbach calling me from New York City, a labor uh, researcher uh, like myself, a member of uh, the Laborers Union right now, long background in organizing. Uh, all of that has to be looked at. Uh, I, I just uh, the other day I was on a job, got a call from my local, and one of the guys says, uh, we're not even allowed to strike. And it's like, or can we strike? And, you know, it's like I said to another uh, organizer I was speaking with. I mean, that's like showing up to the OK Corral without a gun. I mean, if you can't strike, uh, well, you, you just left your main weapon at home, Eric. But going through your article right away, you talk about how, uh, you know, you look at the public sector versus the private sector. And uh, 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 what's your take? You know, it looked like the Janus decision uh, wasn't quite the stake in the heart on public sector unions, uh, as we some feared. And uh, I think in part because uh, it was it was a wake up call by the public sector unions and they responded to that uh, uh, in a few minutes before we get up to the half hour break. You, you want to give me your thoughts there? Yeah, absolutely. So the union membership rate in the private sector is six percent, which is a stunningly low number not seen since a century ago. But the membership rate in the public sector is about one third. Um, and a lot of those those workers largely organized in the 60s and 70s um, at the state and local level and federal level. And so folks may know, uh, remember the Janus Supreme Court decision uh, from 2017, I think, which basically made all of the public sector so-called right to work. And that means that any public sector union member can basically quit the union and stop paying dues, but they still get the benefits of unionism. And so the fear was that millions of workers would take advantage of this and basically be free riders. Uh, and I think what's happened is that that has not been the case. There has been, I think, some loss. I think I looked at the numbers and I thought, you know, maybe 100,000 folks have dropped 
out of many million, um, not a devastating drop. And I think you're right. Uh, public sector unions, um, you know, took this opportunity to do really what we should have been doing all along, which was deeper internal organizing to show folks and convince folks of the need to stick with the union and work together in solidarity rather than be free riders. And it's largely worked. I think the, the public sector um, is, is, in a sense, one of the stronger sectors we have in the labor movement, as we've seen, uh, you know, in the last few years with all of the teacher strikes going on. Um, it's really the private sector that is kind of like on in a death spiral, you know, we're at six percent. Um, it's, it's reached the point again. We haven't seen it in a century. So few members of the private sector, workers in the private sector are union members. We absolutely have to reverse that. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. We're coming up to the half hour here. We'll take a break quickly. So for logistical purposes, as I say, Eric, um, but I think in Washington State, actually, they gained a membership. They didn't lose in the uh, uh, public sector because uh, they really took it on. So Eric Dernbach from New York City, hold on. We're going to uh, stop here so I'll fit into the radio show and uh, I'll catch right up with you. <laughs> 